Will you pray with me? God, I ask that the thoughts of my heart, the words of my lips, and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. This week I have been pondering the dynamics of longing as I reflected on the two texts that we just heard. A longing is a strong feeling or desire for someone or something. What do you long for? What strong feelings possess you? As I reflected in these questions, here are the things that I found myself thinking about. I grew up in a home filled with longing. Such is the life of immigrants. My father longed, and I still believe longs in secret, for a life left behind in Puerto Rico. This is, of course, ironic, because moving to the United States was, in fact, a response to a strong desire, a longing, to have and offer my sister and I a better life. And yet, the pursuit of that dream was not without consequences for the life that he had imagined. His daughters, my sister and I, left home for places too distant to easily access. They replaced the familiar diction of their Puerto Rican Spanish with words and cadences from other peoples and lands. And so he longed strongly for a life that he never had, and he wondered about what it may have been have we remained in Puerto Rico. When I came out, my dad blamed the United States. He, he said if we had stayed in Puerto Rico, this would have never fa- happened. You would be straight. I tried to explain to him that human sexuality did not work that way, but he, has, he held on to that belief for a really long time. He so desperately longed for me to be the daughter that he had imagined and dreamed about that he couldn't see the daughter that he had. He longed for a daughter who would walk through life with a husband, a daughter that he could walk down the aisle, a daughter that would have children in a traditional sense, who would move closer to home and come visit every day. But that was not to be. So he lived with longing. And if I'm completely honest, I too longed for a different father. I wanted a dad that fit into the landscape of our new life in the United States better than he did. I wanted a dad with an accent less powerful. I wanted a dad that cried less. I wanted a dad that had more education, that knew how to navigate the contours of life in this new nation with more grace and finesse than he did. I wanted a dad that understood the social importance of manicured lawns and neatly painted houses. I wanted and longed for a dad that had mental health and a white-collar job who came home smelling of cologne and not transmission fluid. And so the more we longed, the farther we moved away from each other, our longings preventing us to see the people that we were and not so much the people we desire us to be. It trapped us in romanticized tales of ideal fathers and daughters. Now, in hindsight, I 
wish I had understood better then, as a late teenager and an early young adult, the power and external pressures that were shaping our collective longings. I wish I had seen sooner the pressures that were shaping my longings for him to be a different kind of father, the messages that I had internalized. I wish I had seen how much the father I longed for felt like a caricature, some kind of ideal model of American masculinity, some fatherhood straight out of a TV show. It took me a long time to realize that I wanted my dad to be a sitcom character, devoid of real emotions and struggles. And it took my dad a really long time to understand and to own that he was holding on to some idea of a perfect daughter, a straight daughter. So this week, I have been pondering the dynamics of longing and how is it that we end up longing for the wrong things. By the wrong things, I mean those things that do not further the common good. Those things that keep us looking backward, not to learn to keep us looking backward to our past, not necessarily to learn from it, but to find some kind of sense of solace on the way things used to be. By the wrong things, I mean all of those messages that reinforce our own worldview, our rightness, and our way of life. There is something about life in the United States, I concluded after living here for 28 years, that twists the human propensity, the human survival mechanisms for survival, for comfort, for security, for predictability. We like our patterned lives. We all long for things. There is nothing wrong with longing itself. But we have to be critical about the things we long for. We have to examine the stories and narratives that are influencing our longings. That is the lesson it took me a really long time to understand. So this week I have been reflecting on longing, and I've landed in three things that I think are worth naming. One is that uncritical longing results in a tendency to shroud the thing longed for in some fantastical, romanticized story, idea, that tends to obfuscate the complexity of what we're longing for. For example, my dad longed for a country that doesn't actually exist. He longed for some place called Puerto Rico, completely taken out of his imagination. A, a place without problems, a place where none of the challenges that he faced in the U.S. as an immigrant exist, which is not true. So it makes us long and romantic, it makes us romanticize things. The other thing that it makes us do, this business of uncritical longing, is that it has us rewriting history. That the only way that my father can sustain this notion of a country that doesn't actually exist is that he has to rewrite the history of that space. And he has to rewrite his history in it. So my dad rarely talks to us about all of the family dynamics, all of the crises, all of the dysfunction that prompted our leaving Puerto Rico to begin with. Finally, uncritical longing causes us to miss what is happening right in front of our very eyes. 
that between our romanticized look back and our rewriting of history, we have very little time to pay attention to what is in front of us, to what is actually happening among us and in our midst. In the case of my father, these three dynamics, the case of my father and me, these three dynamics led to 10 years of simply failing to see the other with any real clarity. I want to suggest this morning that these three dynamics, this romanticizing, this tendency to romanticize, the rewriting of history, and the failing to do what is, to see what is happening right in front of us, are three dynamics that we, will, we find in our two texts this morning. So I want to attend, turn our attention there. First, we have this text from Numbers, um, which I found myself, too fr- quite frankly, surprised to navigate towards because I never, ever preached in Numbers before. And we, we hear this opening line, the rabble among them had a strong craving, one could say a longing, and the Israelites also wept again and said, if only we had meat to eat. Now, I will be the first person to admit that if I had been wandering in the desert, not knowing where we were going, Basically eating manna all of the time, I too would long for meat and fish. And I began my study of this text with some sympathy for the characters. But the more I read, the more I became convinced that what's happening here, it's a fair bit of romanticizing, a fair bit of rewriting of history, and a failure to see what is happening in front of their very eyes. Because in the longing for fish and fruit and onions and leeks and melons, the thing that seems to be forgotten is that Egypt was a place that enslaved them, was the place that they asked God to release them from, was the place that they had demanded to be taken out of. So it's interesting to me that that's not part of this conversation. It is as if they have amnesia, longing-induced amnesia, and they've forgotten all the things that have brought them to that place. And let's review, just for the sake of argument. So thus far, at this stage, they have witnessed the power of God made manifest among them. They have seen plagues that have brought to their knees the empire, to their knees the empire of Egypt. They have seen a parted sea. They have seen the constant accompaniment of God in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that never left them. They have received water from rocks and they have received food to eat every day. But here they are longing for Egypt, for a place that enslaved them. I'm just amazed at the power of longing for all the wrong things. Not for the thing that God is doing among them, but the place that they just were liberated from. I'm just amazed what happens when in our uncritical longing, we care more about security, shelter, a clear sense of social position, even if that means servitude. And I do say uncritical longing. It is okay to long to have shelter and food to know our place. But we have to be wary of what happens when we aren't being critical of our longings. 
Now, I do think that what's happening here is, doesn't have anything to do with food, but that ultimately what's happening in this text in the 11th chapter of Numbers has a lot more to do with the Israelites' discomfort with their situation, with their unwillingness or inability to trust that God was in fact doing something, that God could be trusted, that God would see them through. And that in that tension, they simply could not long for anything other than a place that was familiar, even if it was oppressive. To me, that is the only reason that that is the only way that I have to understand how having received manna, having seen the things they have seen, they can say, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. I don't know if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't, I recommend that you do. It's the shortest. It can be read in one sitting. It, in fact, was meant to be heard, so the best way to read the Gospel of Mark is to read it aloud as it was a performance piece. One of the themes of the Gospel of Mark is the profound blindness of the disciples. As a reader, you and I know that they don't get it. They don't know that they don't get it, but we know. We are in the know. And one of the things that it's part of the thematic arc of Mark is that the disciples never get it and that Jesus is moving really, really, really fast, urgently, quickly, rapidly, from place to place, never stopping. There is in this Jesus a sense that something is happening that requires that we learn to pay attention. And so, as we think about the text this morning, we find John complaining that somebody has done an exorcism, has taken an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, out of somebody, and how dare they? Before diving further into this story, it does matter that we contextualize it a little bit. So I want to, if you have your pew Bible open and want to look up, you will see that in this ninth chapter of Mark, there is a series of events that have taken place. That it begins with the transfiguration. James, John, and Peter have been up to the mountaintop, and they have seen something amazing. They don't quite understand what it is, but it is amazing. The presence of God has been there. They've also been sworn to secrecy, which is fine because they actually don't understand what they saw. And then they come down. They're coming down and they encounter an argument. Disciples arguing with law interpreters because they failed to exercise a spirit out of a child. They could not do it. And then we see Jesus lose his patience, declare them a faithless generation, and then he does it. And then they go out into the sea, and Jesus announces that he will die. And the disciples are arguing about who will be the first, who will sit closest, who will be the greatest. See what I mean? They don't quite get it. And it is in this context that we see this conversation, this argument from John against the person doing the exorcism in Jesus' name. 
In other words, John is arguing against a person being healed even though the disciples have been given countless opportunities to heal and have been unable to do so. Seems a little petty. Seems a little misguided. And it's actually easy to see why Jesus is so frustrated, constantly frustrated in this text. And it's also easy to see why the harsh words that follow, but I will take on those in a minute. I want to suggest that what is at play here in this exchange between John and Jesus has a lot more to do with the kind of community that these two persons are imagining and a lot less to do with whether or not a healing happened. The disciples are really concerned with what will be the rules of their community. Who will sit highest? Who will be the greatest? Who will get to heal? What is our role? Who will get to be a part of us, this movement of people of the way? Those themes won't stay in Mark. You can read the, gospel, you know, the book of Acts, and it's all about the rules of community. So there's a real concern here about who gets to be in and who gets to be out. The other piece that is in this text is that you have Jesus moved, moving in the world out of a different kind of longing. It's not a longing for rules and belonging, clear paths. He is longing for the inbreaking of the realm of God. That something is, has come near that has the potential to change the world. And he is longing for people that can see it. Because he has a sense that his time is close. That death is near. Competing longings. And so we come to these harsh words from Jesus that seem to come out of nowhere in the story. One minute he's telling them anything that, anybody that does anything in my name can be doing no wrong, and the next thing you know he's talking about self-mutilation and cutting of hands and gouging of eyes. Hard, hard words. And what do they mean? I think the clue, the clue to what they mean is this word little children, the littlest among us which he references earlier in this chapter. I think that Jesus' hard words are born out of profound frustration. How can you not see? Why do you fail to see? So he's trying to communicate to them that we need to be about the work, they need to be about the work of removing the stumbling blocks that prevent people from accessing God's grace and God's goodness from seeing this kingdom that is now among them. I think that is what Jesus is trying to do, frustrated as he may be. I also think that there is a challenge here for those of us who tell the story and for those of us who hear the story to interrogate ourselves and to identify what are the things that are tying us down. What are the things that are getting in our eyes? What are the things that are tying our hands and binding our feet so that we can't see and participate in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on this earth? So then I turn to that question that every person who preaches a sermon has to turn to, which is, what does this mean for us? I fear that today, more than ever, 
It's so easy to long for the wrong things, for the things that prevent others from seeing and experiencing the grace of God, that it's so easy to long for the things that do not further the common good. I would, I would say that we are a society committed, deeply committed to its own comfort, to its safety and stability, to its sense of power and influence. I would say that we have been socialized, and I fear that we have been socialized, to believe that change is easy and something that can be done with money. Buy an iWatch, and you are doing something remarkable that will change the world. Buy a pink blender, and cancer will be cured. Heal the sick by giving a donation. Not address the conditions that create sickness and our participation in them so that we don't have sick people. We have given an idea of change that is remarkably unrealistic because it doesn't in any way change our lives. And yet we expect that something magical will happen. I also fear that we are shaped by a national narrative that is confusing and obfuscating, that rewrites history, and that in fact fails to see what is happening among us. Consider the current political climate. All of these invitations, all of these words of longing for an America that I'm not sure was ever that good or that great, at least not for everybody. Because certainly, until about 50 years ago, not everybody was a full human being. So how great can America have been? And I say this as a critical lover of this nation and as a citizen. We have to be more critical about the things we long for, I look at our current political climate and I wonder, so who is actually really advocating for women of color and indigenous youth? Who is really acknowledging and speaking honestly about the social and economic arrangement that produces economic injustice? Who is really calling out our nation in our one more mongering ways? While we have our invitations, messages of longing for some stable idea of an America that has historically been homogeneous, in every way, at least as it relates to who has power. I think about all of the commercials and advertisements that I am bombarded with of white picket fences, of families of a mom and a dad and two kids and a dog, of hardworking ranchers, longing. Think about football commercials after the great gathering game and religious service that is the Super Bowl. And that crallying cry of making America great again, some of us are filled with fear because that America for our people has meant death, marginalization. It is dangerous to have uncritical longings. 
So I think that part of what makes us vulnerable to all of those messages, to all of that rewriting of history, to all of those romantic views, what makes it hard for us to see what God might be doing in our midst is that we like comfort. We like safety. We like a perfectly patterned life. And anything that challenges us gets experienced as a threat or something that needs to be controlled, something that needs to be managed. I think that the greatest damage that this uncritical longing does to us is that it limits our imaginative capacity to think of a different possibility. We can't conceive of anything different, so we keep doing the exact same things we've always done and expect a different result, and our uncritical longing leads to insanity. We cry and cry and cry deliverance, but when the rubber meets the road, when we are in the desert, when God has been providing and guiding, we do not trust God, we don't trust that God will see us through, and we cry for Egypt. So then I have to ask myself, and I am among those people, because I like comfort and security and stability and a perfectly patterned life. I have to ask myself, what will it take us? What will it take us to turn toward, to turn our bodies, our energy, our labor toward cultivating and sustaining a longing for the kingdom of God that is as strong and as effective as we have cultivated our longing for a perfectly patterned life? What will it take? What might we have to pick up and what might we have to let go of? I have no answers for that. But I rely on the things that we have said we believe. And so I want to read a few things that we as Presbyterians have said we believe. We say that we believe that God has revealed himself as the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among people. We have said that we believe that God in a world full of injustice and enmity is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wrong. We have said that we believe that God calls the church to follow him in this, for God brings justice to the oppressed and gives, gives bread to the hungry. We have said that God frees the prisoner and restores sight to the blind, and that we believe that. We have declared that God supports the downtrodden, protects the stranger, helps orphans and widows, and blocks the path of the ungodly. We have said that God wishes to teach the church to do what is good and to seek the right that the church must therefore stand by people in any form of suffering and need, which implies, among other things, that the church must witness against and strive against any form of injustice so that justice may roll down like waters. We have said that we believe that the church as the possession of God must stand where the Lord stands, namely against injustice and with the wrong. This is what we have said we believe. How do we cultivate a longing for the kingdom of God that has that be what propels our movement forward as a church? 
I'll be honest, I think that the hardest thing that Christians face today in North America, particularly those of us that have privilege, whether it be class privilege or race privilege or gender privilege, that the hardest thing that face us is our inability to long, to truly and deeply long for the kingdom of God because we are too busy longing for what makes us comfortable. So then what is the good news? I think that the good news is that we are more than this and that God is more than the church and that we have said that we believe and as in making that declaration, it is in fact possible for us to do that. The good news is that we don't have to do it alone, that we are a community and as such we help each other cultivate our longings make the turns toward that beloved community that God so hopes for the world. And we are strengthened with the fact that we live in the hope of the resurrection, that we live in the hope of Christ, who we have said will return, so that when we are tempted to turn our face to Egypt, to long for what has been left behind, that we help each other, that we stand around and are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that worked hard to cultivate that longing and to make the realm of God be visible in this place. And we also are able to do this because it is not just for us that we long. We long for all 30 of those children that were sitting a few minutes in this stage. We long that they may have a church that can cultivate their longing for a different world. We long for them we long for those who do not know how to long because they are oppressed. And so we long and we pray that we have the capacity to display the great courage to make this world a better place. That in that moment when our bellies rumble, when it feels like it's going to rain and we do not know if we will have shelter, that instead of turning toward Egypt, we will turn to the light of God. This is my prayer. Amen.